I invite you to turn back in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Thank you, Jesse, for reading the scripture to us this morning. We're going to go to the next chapter here, the chapter 2. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But we'll be staying pretty much in, in this letter. Paul's second letter to Timothy is, is pretty familiar to us. There's quite a few sections of this letter that we are powerful. We enjoy reading it. We enjoy studying it. I think we like it because it also speaks of what he considers the end times, the generation to come, what we'll be facing as a church, as a church body, as a church family. We like it because it's his last letter, so we want to see what his final words will be. We like it because he, he's encouraging and exhorting Timothy. He's speaking from prison, and he's Warning Timothy, he'll do this in chapter 3, the first five verses of chapter 3, and also some in chapter 4 as well of the difficult days ahead. I do find it interesting that this is his last letter, and he's anticipating that he will, his life is coming to an end. Eusebius, the historian, says that he was beheaded under Nero. That's what historians seem to confirm, though the scripture does not specify that probably in the early 60s, 64 uh, or so after Christ, a few years before Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem. So you would think, you know, if, if I were to write my last letter and I, I knew I was about ready to be beheaded, my final words might be a contemplation of my life. But you don't see any of that here. He, he does give an, an exhortation to, to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, but he doesn't, there's no nostalgia here about looking back at his life. He does see the sacrifice given, and he exhorts Timothy to continue in the like manner. So he, in chapter 3, he warns Timothy that, and the church at Ephesus that there will come a time where people will become increasingly lovers of self, is how he describes it in chapter 3. And you know, in spite of what modern psychology teaches us, loving yourself leads to being greedy, boastful, proud, scoffing at God, a rebellious generation, ungrateful, a generation where nothing is considered sacred. Of course, when you read that, the re- one reason why this letter rings a bell to us is because we're reading and thinking, wow, that's exactly where we're at. You know, we, we live in a generation where nothing is considered sacred. Who, who would thought that someone would even advocate Abortion being as, as, as tragic as it, as it is to advocate that it's even possible the day before birth or a few minutes after birth. Slanderous, out of control, chaos, describing hate on full display. People not just content to promote and love evil, but people that will hate that which is good, all while acting religious. So the description we see here is is exactly where we see as believers where we're heading, where we are in many ways as a society. It's indicative of the many things that we read every day in our local news. This inward spiral of society. This inward spiral of destruction. This self-centeredness that began in the garden the moment sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve became self-centered. They pointed fingers at each other. They accused each other. And from there, society just grew deeper in its self-centeredness. And and Paul is warning. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, he's about ready to be beheaded, and yet he sees 
dark days ahead. I'm thinking, your days are pretty dark already. And in doing so, he, he describes the, the godliness to come. And here's the admonition he gives to Timothy in this context. He encourages him and challenges him, would you share in suffering for the gospel? Would you share in suffering for the gospel? The text that we read this morning, I read in chapter 1, says, well, do not be ashamed of the testimony of, our, testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is the question that I would like to put before us. Am, am I willing, am I prepared to suffer for the gospel? I'm not talking about the trials and tribulations that are common to man, fear, poverty, health needs, loneliness, Grief, there's a proper biblical response to all of those, but he's talking specifically as we face the challenging times, will we be up to the task and would we be willing to suffer for the advancement of the gospel? You might be ready to study the gospel. You might be ready to teach the gospel. You might be ready to even preach the gospel, but are you ready to suffer for the gospel? This is the theme that flows Throughout his letter, verse 8, that we, rare share, that we read, share in the suffering for the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I was appointed a preacher, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, because I preach and teach the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, share in the suffering as a good soldier. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, remember Christ for which I am suffering. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. And then chapter 4, verse 5, be sober-minded and endure suffering. So throughout this letter, the theme of suffering is present, and we see it present in Paul's life. There are trials to come, but this is not a message of gloom. This is a message of hope and one of triumph, as we'll see even this morning. In chapter 4, verse 17, near the end of this letter, he says, The Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. This is not a letter where he has this dark picture of society. He presents Timothy with the challenges ahead and encourages him to join him in suffering for the advancement of the gospel. So if you look with me in chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, and I want to focus our attention on these three verses, and then from there expand from other passages, but focus primarily on these three verses. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's 
the outline that we'll be looking at this morning, looking at these three areas. First of all, looking at the Christ of our suffering, remembering Christ, remembering the risen one, remembering the offspring of David. Then we'll see the chains of our suffering, how my chains identify me with the gospel and identify me with Christ. And then the chosen of our suffering, suffering for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the chosen, for the sake of their salvation, and for the sake of eternal glory. Verse 8, the first imperative he begins here with is remembering Jesus Christ. We could spend, no doubt, all morning just on those three words, remembering Jesus Christ. Many times when Paul mentions Christ, he usually says Christ Jesus. Some speculate it's because he did not walk with Christ as other apostles did. So when he refers to Christ, he says Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. But here he begins with Jesus Christ, the incarnate one. And and using the word remember here, he's pointing to a foundation that has already been laid. He is referring to something that had already been poured and had already been given. No new foundation was needed. No new revelation was needed. What Timothy had already received in Christ Jesus was sufficient for the sacrifice and for the purpose God had designed him for. The gospel is sufficient. As a matter of fact, in the first few verses of chapter 2, one that we often quote and talking about the admonition of Timothy of passing on to faithful men the same truth, the same foundation. There's something beautiful knowing that the foundation that was poured in Jesus Christ is sufficient. It was sufficient for my father. It was sufficient for me. It will be sufficient for my children. And it will be sufficient someday for my grandchildren from generation to generation to generation. Remember Jesus Christ. And all the challenges that lie ahead and the wickedness of a generation to come, the same gospel, the same foundation that was laid will be sufficient. The one that my forefathers depended on is the one I depend on and is the one I will pass on to the next generation. Generations to follow will continue proclaiming, remember Jesus Christ. And when we take the Lord's Supper this evening, we'll be saying what? We'll be saying, remember Jesus Christ. Psalm 102, verse 12 says, But O you, O Lord, you're enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Now, it might seem strange. I mean, why does, why does Paul need to remind Timothy? He's a minister of the gospel. I mean, why does he have to remind Timothy to not forget Jesus Christ? Paul's reminding Timothy to make Christ constantly present in his thoughts and in his minds. Of course, Timothy wasn't forgetting Christ in the sense that he had, oh, yes, I'd forgotten about Jesus. No, but we can serve in a way where we're forgetful and he's not present in our daily thoughts and he's not present in our daily minds. And what was needed for Timothy, as he continues and he faces suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel, is that he keeps his eyes and his attention and his focus on Jesus Christ. All throughout Scripture, we're blessed to see 
the Psalms encourage us, encouraging us to constantly remember Christ. Remembering Christ means not just believing in Him, it means living for Him. In Psalm 119, verse 55, he says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. Remembering Christ in Psalm 143 means pondering his significance. I remember the days of old, and I meditate on all that you have done, and I ponder the work of your hands. Remembering Christ means praising his name. Psalm 45, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, all nations will praise you forever and ever. It means finding in Christ our rock and our refuge. In Psalm 78, he says, They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. I find it interesting indeed that that Timothy, a minister of the gospel, needs to be reminded to remember Jesus Christ. A little bit later, you know, the church of Ephesus is a church that we see all throughout Scripture. It's a very present church, of course, through Ephesians. We see it in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 20, 21, a warning is given to the church of Ephesus. He warns them that there's going to be wolves that come into your midst and to watch out for the wolves and be a discerning. And then we see it in 1 Timothy, and then we see it in 2 Timothy. The church of Ephesus is, is very present in Scripture. I find it interesting that in the book of Revelation chapter 2, he, he commends the church for a lot of things. Chapter 2, verse, the first five verses of, of Revelation, he commends the church for a lot of things. And he says that, you know, I commend you for your hard work. I commend you that you endured. I commend you that you fought off false teachers. And yet, though they worked for Christ, they no longer worshipped Christ. In Revelation 2, he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember their love and passion you have for Christ. As you're busy, you're working, you're diligent, you're enduring, but keep Christ your focus. And the passion and love for Christ that you had, you've lost. Remember that and come back to it and repent they had worked, and they were working hard for the kingdom, but they had lost sight of the king. Oh, how easy it is for all of us, even ministers of the gospel, to make it about me and not about him. Even in a situation where you're, you're working hard for the gospel and you're serving in every capacity, it's, it's not hard to lose focus. And his first admonition, his first imperative is remember Jesus Christ. Paul expounds on this imperative by pointing to two things. The first thing he'll tell them is, remember Jesus Christ, the risen one. The risen one. We talked about this last week, just in referencing uh, in, in our time with Boaz, talking about the importance and the centrality of the resurrection. Remember Jesus Christ, the, the risen one. The resurrection of Christ is the most prominent Christian truth, containing the guarantee of all other aspects of the work of Christ. His resurrection is a precursor, and is the res- precursor of the resurrection of those who belong to him, and thus the ground of our hope. He is raised 
and he is alive. And because he has risen from the dead, he is alive and he reigns forever. He is the risen one. It implies the divine one. It implies the eternal one and proves the efficacy of his sin-bearing sacrifice. He is Savior. Yes, we can suffer for the sake of the gospel and even suffer the way Paul did and even suffer in the face of death, which, granted, most of us will probably not have to face that kind of suffering. And yet we can do so freely in the face of death, knowing that he is the resurrection and he is the risen one. In chapter 1, verse 10, that he read this morning already, it says, Christ abolished death and he brought life and he brought immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. I can suffer as I do because he is the resurrection. He is the risen one. What motivation would there be? What hope would there be to suffer for Christ if he had not risen? What purpose would there be if he had not conquered death? What hope would there be in the face of such adversity, in the face of such suffering? He abolished death. He brought life, and he brought immortality to light, which is why I proclaim it, I teach it, and I'm willing to suffer for it. He says, remember the offspring of David. You know, the Jews had many misconceptions, but one thing they had right is that the Messiah was to be of the offspring of David. Jesus is a descendant of David and the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. The good news of the gospel that Paul proclaims is rooted in this historical truth. He is the fulfillment of promise. He's the one that you're waiting for. He is the Messiah. There are many unbelieving Jews who are still waiting for the coming of Messiah. I would want to ask them, what are you, what could Christ have done more to prove to you that he was Messiah? He was the fulfillment and the offspring of David, and he is the risen one. He is the long-awaited one. Gabriel, when he announced the coming of Christ in Luke chapter 1, and his birth, he says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. As risen from the dead, as offspring of David, he is the king of kings. He is the last and final king. He is the triumphant, universal, and eternal king. His resurrection makes him king over all kings. Raised from the dead, he continues to be the living and a resurrected Lord. What a powerful, imperative statement that he gives to Timothy in the face of adversity. When I read this and as we study this, as you unpack this, as you unfold this, as you contemplate what it means to say, remember Jesus Christ, the risen one, the offspring of David, what, what a blessing and what, how overwhelming it is to see the fulfillment we have in Christ. And yes, as, you're, as he tells him this, he encourages him and empowers him to suffer for the gospel. He says, remember Christ, the risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. 
see the chains of our suffering. My chains identify me with the gospel. He says, I was preaching my gospel, not because Paul is the author of the gospel, but Paul is the minister of the gospel. This is my gospel, he says. This is the one I proclaim. This is the one I believe in. This is the one for which I live. This is the one I teach. That's what he means by saying, you know, this is my gospel. That's why he says earlier, the verse we read earlier in verse 12, chapter 1, that this is why you know, I preach it. I'm the apostle, teacher of gospel. This is why I am willing to suffer for it. The reason why I suffer as I do. Paul was in chains because of the gospel that he preached. One commentator says it this way. He says that this gospel that preaches this type of Christ will draw persecution. It will get people in trouble. A gospel that is meant to draw man to repentance will draw the ire of those who oppose the gospel. As opposed to a gospel that is designed to attract the world, if we try to develop and fashion a gospel that is meant to attract the world, we will not bring the ire of the world, but neither will it bring man face to face with his need to repent and confess. Salvation comes through the proclamation of the gospel. So many verses speak to this and attest to this. Romans 1, 6, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, that it, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Man comes to the knowledge of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. But this gospel will draw suffering. This gospel will draw persecution. This type of gospel will. I encourage believers many times that want to walk in truth. I, remember, I remind them. I shared this with a student this past year. They were talking about the frustration of wanting to walk in truth. And, you know, so few people really want to walk in righteousness. I reminded the student. I said, listen, you must remember. The more you walk with the Lord, the more narrow the path will be. The more clear the gospel in your life, the more resistance you will get. The more passionate you are about the Lord, about who He is and what He's done and what He is doing, the more those around you will feel uncomfortable with that type of gospel. Oh, we're okay with the gospel. We're okay with a social gospel. We're okay with the gospel that calls us to love and to give and to be a blessing. But we're not okay with a gospel that confronts man in his sin and calls him to repentance. I remember talking to a, a colleague, pastor colleague in France, and he says, you know, when he took over this ministry, the previous pastor was having prayer meetings with the local priest. He goes, I didn't quite understand that, but I didn't want to offend the man, so I met with him and says, listen, we're not going to be able to have prayer meetings together. And here's why. And he explained to them, and the priest says, you know, I thought it was kind of strange that he wanted to meet with me. Why? Because, of course, if you try to find the common denominator of love, you're going to find that. But when we start preaching the gospel, you cannot bring the gospel to bear in the life of someone who is teaching things that are opposite to the truth. The gospel will bring those around you. And, and, and Paul is telling Timothy, be willing to embrace that. And you know, it, it's normal and natural that we want to be 
accepted. No, no one here enjoys being rejected. Being raised in a, in a secular culture like France where you were the, you know, you're the only person in your neighborhood that knows the Lord. Everyone around you is antagonistic. Of course, you can make good friends if you're sharing good food. You have somebody over and you share a good stick of bread and cheese and, and have a good time. But once you share the gospel, I remember having dinner. Such a comfortable, agreeable time. Until this, the question was asked, well, I mean, what's the difference really between you know, Protestants and Catholics? And it says, well, John 14, 6 says this. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. The wife stood up. I mean, it's like a turn to switch on. She got so angry in two seconds. I mean, what happened to the good meal? What happened to the fellowship? The moment I proclaim Jesus Christ is the only way, he says, you can't say that. I don't say that, but the word does. The gospel is going to be offensive. And if we live out the gospel the way we should live it out, we will also suffer persecution. He brings that to bear so clearly in this letter. He describes it in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He gives a description of these difficult times. And he says what? People will not endure, which means they're not going to put up with sound teaching. They're not going to tolerate it. And you're going to be labeled, and I'm going to be labeled many different labels because there's a hatred for what the gospel really represents. Another commentator said it this way. People don't want a message from the word. They want a massage. I guess I want to be massaged when they come to church. Paul's exhortation to Timothy says, endure suffering. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't know how you can get more encompassing than that. All and every. I mean, all who desire, they will be persecuted. When I read this, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't look at this. And the reason why I'm moved when I read these texts is because I realize, oh, how much I fall short of Paul's example. Oh, how I desire that my life would be, as he describes it, a, a drink offering to the Lord. But the reason why Paul suffered is not because he had a label on his jacket that says Christian. The reason why he suffered is because he proclaimed a gospel that others did not want to hear and that bothered. And he lived a life consistent with what he proclaimed. And be not mistaken, as society hardens itself towards God and his word, it will harden itself against those who identify with God and who identify with his word. But let's embrace that for the sake of Christ. He is the worthy risen one. He's the only one worth that kind of life and that kind of sacrifice. He describes his chains. My chains identify me with Christ. Paul had learned to let Christ be his life. 
in the verses that followed the ones we read, in verses 11 and 12, he's saying, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, if we suffer, we will also reign with him. This echoes the same theme he says in Philippians, the same things he'll say in Galatians. In Philippians 1, he'll say, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, or it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It wasn't just a little slogan. It wasn't just a magnet on his refrigerator. It wasn't just a bumper sticker on his car. It was something that he lived, and he proclaimed it. He had learned to let Christ be his life. The beauty of what Paul was advocating in change, he's bound with his change. Paul had learned that Christ was to be his life. Paul's freedom had not been taken away from him. It had been given away. He had not been robbed of his rights. He crucified those rights for the sake of the cross. Paul had learned to make his life a sacrifice as unto the Lord. In one of his final comments in chapter 4, verse 6, he gives a beautiful picture. He says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I am already being, what, poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure has come. He had already told the elders at Ephesus in chapter, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course. He had not counted his life of any value except for the value he had in Christ Jesus. And this poured offering he talks about here is a beautiful picture of a life given entirely as a sacrifice as unto the Lord. Picture this here, this picture of a drink offering takes you back to Numbers chapter 15. You might see that in some of your notes in Scripture. It takes you back to Numbers 15 where the drink offering is presented. An offering, like a burnt offering, was not complete until the drink offering was given. Paul had served the Lord faithfully for many years now, and he is picturing here the completed sacrifice of his life. The complete pouring out of his life is now complete. And his image of that is in this drink offering that is poured out. This image that carries this drink offering is one, first of all, something that is finished. It is completed. His life and service to the Lord is now complete. It is something that is pleasing. It has this, if you go back to Numbers 15, it describes the sweet-smelling offering. This image of a drink offering is the image of an offering that is completed, that is finished, that is sweet-smelling, and that is complete. An entire pouring out. You don't pour out half the cup and see if that was enough. You complete pouring out. Wow, I wish I can speak those same words. That my life would be poured out. For the Savior. He says he was in chains as a criminal. 
He was treated as a criminal. A criminal was an evildoer. Someone who had committed serious crimes and consequently faced penalties such as crucifixion. In his case, decapitation, since usually, not always, but usually Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. How nice. You're exempt from crucifixion, but you get decapitation. I'm not sure option B was much better. But the term criminal, I find it beautiful here as well, is only used one other time in Scripture, and I think you probably could think of where that is. It's used to describe the criminals who surrounded Christ at the cross. In Luke 23, 33, says, When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, when Paul was accused of being a criminal, he is accused of being an evildoer. He identified himself with the one who was crucified, surrounded by criminals. I can't think of a better place to be and better company to be in than Christ. And finally, he says he had learned not to be ashamed of Christ. Again, several times here in his letter, he encourages Timothy three times to not be ashamed don't be ashamed, verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Chapter 1, verse 12, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe. Chapter 2, verse 15, present yourself to God, a worker who has no need to be, what, ashamed. I think as we look at the, the word ashamed, we could see it as something to say, well, don't be shy about it, don't be embarrassed about it. But there's one aspect, I believe, here that draws out what he's trying to say Part of shame, and one facet of shame, is that which brings censure or reproach. Not being ashamed of the gospel means proclaiming it freely, not holding back. Systematically, when you see Paul said it even a little bit earlier in Philippians 1.20, when he talks about being a, an offering poured out unto the Lord and talks about um, his eager expectation and hope, he said, I will not be ashamed, but with full Courage proclaim the word. So when Paul talks about you know, not being ashamed of the word, I don't know that he's saying, you know, I don't want to be embarrassed about Christ. He's saying, I don't want to hold back anything, and I want to speak fully and not be ashamed and not hold back anything in the proclamation of the truth and apply it unashamedly to my life. Don't hold back. So Sister Maggie tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. I mean, Timothy's a minister of the word. Don't hold back the proclamation of the gospel. Give it fully. Give it completely. In Philippians 1, when he says that, he talks about, for me to live is Christ. And I want to live completely and proclaim unashamedly the truth of the gospel. And even when he's asking other believers to pray for him, and Paul says, Pray for me that I would not be ashamed. I don't think he's saying pray for me that I don't be embarrassed about the gospel. I think he's saying pray for me that I might be able to completely and fully proclaim the gospel. May we do the same. The last portion here of this verse, I find it. I find it beautiful as well. The chosen of our suffering. Paul describes here, and when you go back and you read 
verses 8 through 10. Well, I encourage you today, you know, it only takes a few minutes to read through the entire letter. Go back and read the entire letter and see the, the flow of thought that Paul gives here. There's a lot of conjunctures, conjunctions rather, in these three, in these three verses that are interesting to see the, the links that he makes with different thoughts. He talks about the chosen of our suffering. He says, the, the word of God says, I am in chains, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, he says, verse 10, I endure everything for what? For the sake of the elect, that they, or the sake of the chosen, right? That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I had not really thought through this in a long time. I don't believe Paul is saying here that the gospel is progressing despite persecution and suffering. Some people look at that as, you know, it must be okay, I'm in chains, but hey, in spite of my suffering, the gospel is going to continue. I believe he's saying here that rather his suffering is the means by which the gospel progresses. The word is free to spread in my suffering. There is not just a contrast being made here between I am chained, God's word is not. There is a cause and effect presented here where he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul's chains are the means by which the gospel is proclaimed and the means by which the elect or the chosen obtain salvation. Of course, it doesn't mean that my suffering or Paul's suffering somehow has some redemptive value. Far from it. But it is the means by which the gospel is proclaimed. The chosen obtain salvation in Christ, not apart from the preaching of Christ, but by the means of it. And the proclamation of the gospel has always required a suffering agent. We are called, and he is called, in the beauty of him sacrificing himself for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. His suffering is a means for the gospel to go freely that the elect might come to salvation. The proclamation of the gospel has always required a suffering agent. It required the suffering of Christ on the cross. And it requires us to suffer with him, to die with him, that he might live through us. What a tremendous encouragement as we proclaim the gospel. The beauty of the statement that he's making at the end here is that Paul's understanding of the doctrine of the elect did not impede his obedience, but rather it fueled his obedience. Let me just repeat that. The understanding of the doctrine of the elect did not impede his obedience, but rather it fueled his obedience. He suffered knowing that God is pleased to use him as an instrument in the hands of a redeeming Savior. We are called for the, to suffer for the advancement of the gospel, not in hope that some might come to Christ, not in hope that some might choose Christ, but in confidence that God will save for his glorious purpose. What a beautiful thing, knowing that we're called to suffer for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation. 
Though the salvation of the elect is presented as something yet to happen, Pastor Farrell mentioned this, I believe, a couple weeks ago in going through Romans. In our text, we're reading it, and we're saying, well, there's a before and after. We're going for the sake of the elect so that they will obtain salvation. There's a, there's a, a timeline there. But I would like just to remind us that we serve an omnipresent God. And someone said this to me, I think about a month ago. I read this, and it's like, wow, if you ponder this too long, you lose your mind. He said, we serve an omnipresent God. He is omnipresent in space, and he's omnipresent in time. I just ponder that for a minute. You'll get a headache. He is omnipresent in space. That was always the general understanding, but he's also omnipresent in time. So he sees the completed task. He sees the completed chosen that come to him, those that belong to him. Paul, in suffering for the elect, is in stark contrast with the self-centered generation that he presents in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. You know, one thing I find interesting when you, when you walk through the text and you look through uh, the Great Commission, you often go to Matthew 28. I find it interesting, you know, Matthew 28 says what? Go and what? Make disciples, baptize, and teach. You know there's an assumption that's made there when you go? What's the assumption? That people will come to know the Lord. He doesn't say go and, and, and uh, in Mark 16, he'll say proclaim the gospel. But there's an assumption that as you go and as you're faithful to going, God will use that sacrifice to bring his people to him. Salvation is assumed that God will do his work. In John 4, he tells his disciples to look at the harvest. He doesn't say go plow the ground. He's saying, well, the harvest is ready. What a stark contrast with Paul, this suffering agent that pours himself as a drink offering, contrasted with a self-centered generation in chapter 3. And the more we advance in the society, the more we pour ourselves out for the Lord, the more we'll be in contrast with a society that is so self-centered, they only care about one thing, that's me, myself, and I. And as you come and you try to, to, to train, like he says in chapter 2 in the first couple of verses, Train these men, prepare the next generation to do what? To give themselves up fully and completely for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the elect. In Philippians chapter 1, that parallels a lot of this letter. He says in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. His suffering not only serves to advance the gospel, his suffering serves to encourage others to be bold in their proclamation of the gospel as well. The boldness of our proclamation rests in his unfailing commitment to the salvation of the elect. Paul was confident when he and Apollos were serving that one would plant and one would water, but God would give the increase. God would add to the church. God would grow the bride of Christ. 
But together, he says, we were, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, but we are but servants through whom you believed. And so in doing so, Paul is given his life for something he describes here in the last words, that they may obtain the salvation as in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is given his life for something that has and something of eternal value, that the elect may reach eternal glory. What greater purpose could your life have? What greater purpose could your life have? One commentator in describing this verse says, as much as the chosen, their salvation is secure, so is the means secure, meaning our suffering is sure to bring about the purposes of Christ and bring in his people into the fold. Now that is something that is worth suffering for. That is something worth living for. And that is certainly something Paul saw as worth dying for. So just a few concluding thoughts here this morning. The suffering of Christ was not in vain, and neither is ours. I mean, Paul is trying to equip Timothy. He's trying to prepare the church at Ephesus for society, for generation to come, that will be so self-centered and so hate the truth that it will call upon believers to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 8, as he concludes his thoughts, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who loved his appearing. He talks about receiving the crown of righteousness. Steve Lawson says, in reference to the past, he says, there must be a cross before there can be a crown. May I exhort you this morning to take to heart the words of Paul to Timothy. Would you be willing to suffer for the advancement of the gospel by proclaiming truth, by living that truth out into your lives? Perhaps this morning you need simply to remember Christ. Your life is busy. One thing I've enjoyed in having my nephew visit us this, morning, uh, this past week I, my brother's a missionary to France, and we've had our nephew with me. He says, boy, one thing you learn about Americans is they're busy. They're always running somewhere. We are busy because we can. There's so much to do. We don't want to miss out on anything. We don't want our kids to miss out on anything. So we sign them up for everything. But we're so busy that we forget to remember Jesus Christ. And our life is no longer focused on him Perhaps you need this morning to just commit your life to living, living the gospel, living your life in such a way that it will draw suffering. It will draw the persecution and the resentment of society that will hate truth and will hate all those who are associated with it. But I'd rather be a criminal by the side of Christ than I would be loved by the world. Maybe it's time to rethink what it means to die to self that he may have preeminence in your life. 
Perhaps you need to proclaim the gospel more boldly, more confidently. Not that you're ashamed of it, but you're holding back. I don't want to offend them. Folks, let, don't offend because of your abrasive personality, but let the God speak truth into their life so they may be drawn to repentance and confession and repentance. May the Lord give us to heart these words of Paul this morning. May we be willing. It's a blessing to know that the same Christ that I built my life on, that I preached, that I teach, will be sufficient for the generations to follow, that we might serve Christ and the generation to come for his, for his glory. Amen.